Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard. Uh, look, I need to get something off my shoulders here. Uh, maybe a chip that's on there now. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of fun. But come on, really? The, the title of this podcast, and it fits in our uh, our series on Christianityism versus the Gospel. And here's the question that's being asked. Is the simple, uncluttered Gospel antinomian? Look, Really? I mean, if you've been listening to the Gospel Rant for any length of time, and if you checked out our website and you participated in any of the spiritual formation tools that we have there, and if you're beginning to plunge personally into the simple, uncluttered Gospel more and more, yeah, you're going to notice some differences, but be prepared. You will maybe likely sort of be accused of being antinomian, and wrongly so, but welcome to the club. Now, they may not use, your accusers may not use a long technical word like antinomian, but what they mean is that somehow you're not for the law. You're, you're against the, the commands of God, and you treat God's holiness lightly for some reason. You don't take the Bible's commands for good work seriously. You're into easy grace, <laughs> and on and on and on. They may even accuse you of coming across like you could give a flip about people's sin or or the church's holiness at all. Um, you know, maybe you're not even a Christian. <laughs> but, oh my goodness, hang tight. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, this topic came to mind again, recent chat with my son-in-law, Reverend Jeff Buster, we were talking about the innate wildness and offensiveness of the gospel to our ears and to our lives. I mean, that is when we say it aloud and we don't put any of the usual constraints on it or carry our own insecurities and shame factors into the discussion. If we say it just right, you know, you might and likely will to some ears come across as an antinomian. So which is it? Law? or simple, uncluttered gospel. So imagine a spectrum, one on one side, one on the other. By the way, I, for one, don't pit the two against each other. I mean, that's the whole point. I believe biblically that we do take God's commands very seriously. They're God's commands. But also, we must be aware, come on, that we won't be successful at doing the law until we're in heaven. Only one person has ever been successful keeping the law, and, and that's the standard. I'll talk more about that. And twice we read, there is none righteous, not one. That's one in the, once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament. And that includes all of humanity. That includes the, your accuser, uh, honestly. And I would, I am not suggesting that we then throw our hands in the air and just forget about the law. I mean, if we can't do it, well, why try? That's absurd. And that would be antinomian. The only options are not on one side, busting people's chops with the law all the time. Uh, on one side, you know, speaking of hell's fire and, and damnation on one side and not mentioning the law on the other side of the spectrum. The, the one side leads to shame and burnout. The other leads to shame and flagrant, desperate licentiousness. Right? Shame is on both sides, by the way. So, and thanks to Tim Keller for hammering this point. Uh, he he presents a spectrum that speaks of legalism versus antinomianism, or he's used the terms religion versus irreligion, or moralism versus relativism. All of those are, are correct. And the gospel-centered life, 
Uh, Thune and Walker described the problem like this, quote, legalists continue to live under the law, believing God's approval, this is important, believing God's approval is somehow dependent upon their right conduct. Licentious people, right, the other end of the spectrum, dismiss the law, believing that they are under grace. God's rules don't matter much, close quote. I mean, not anymore. They say post-cross, we don't have to worry about that, right? That's antinomia. And by the way, both sides of that spectrum are immersed and empowered by conscious or subconscious prideful self-centeredness, both sides. So if you can imagine that spectrum with legalism on one side and antinomianism on the other, it's totally wrong to imagine that the actual gospel-centered life is in the middle somewhere. God help us. Look, think about it. That would imply that we don't need God right now. We don't need the spirit in our inner being. We don't need help. We just need to choose by our own strength and free will to live the gospel-centered life better. But that's my problem. And if you've been listening to the gospel rant, you get it too. I can't do that. I won't do that. I have a history to prove it. If I could, I would have by now. So rather, we preach, and we think this is so biblical, we need power that comes from God all the time through the Spirit in our inner being to begin to love God and others and, and even love myself, right? And have I mentioned I'm shame prone? If we teach people to just choose, and it's on their shoulders, to live like Jesus, and they may gird their loins and pull it off for a time, maybe a day, maybe two, maybe a week, but they're going to crash and burn and shame eventually. Look around. The better image is to see a, a different box over the spectrum. Uh, to be clear, it's not even on the self-effort spectrum at all. And that's the Holy Spirit's miraculous working in me to make me feel God's love and to make me want to love others more. Meaning, I can't do it on my own. I don't have the power my subconscious continues to fight against me loving others and being loved by others. Nothing has hurt me more than relationships. And there's a part of my subconscious that's rigid. I mean, there's so many boundaries. See, the core of our problem, um, this horizontal spectrum without the box, is a secular, secular humanism and secularism's hideous hidden fingers sowing confusion in the church that Jesus is building. And secularism is that well-meaning philosophy. This is Christianityism, where the church is immersed in secularism. And by the way, often good fruit, well-meaning people, that ultimately encourages each to choose to do good. I mean, that sounds right, right? It's up to everyone to be kind and loving, more kind and loving. It's within our reach. We just need to try harder. Being good and doing good are rational choices that we can make, right? It's in our power. We just need to be convinced, cajoled. Empowered, equipped, counseled, uh, self-medicated, set free, uh, right? Uh, so from secular lenses, the Bible says to be holy, and it wouldn't say it unless we could do it, right? That sounds reasonable. And so we need to do, if we're faithful and, and, uh, uh, and, we, and we want to get God's favor, we need to do whatever it takes and do it more. And so that's why we need preaching and teaching to remind us just how big a sinners we really are and to shame us into doing good. I mean, just listen to that. We would never say it that way, but that's what we do. And in the, in the end, we, we shame people to, to be more Christ-like because God's going to reward the successful. That's what we've taught more than those who didn't pull it off or didn't take it seriously. So if you're a legalist, 
you choose to be more gracious. And if you're an antinomian, you focus more on the law and you meet in the middle somewhere. Really? Is, is that where evangelicalism is right now? Yeah, and it's been there for decades, by, by the way. That's just Christianityism. It's, it's deistic as well. I don't need God. God started this. He gave me the guidelines, and he's gone now. And in the end, he's going to come back, and he's going to favor the people who have done it right. But the problem is nobody's doing it right. And this is why our pews are filled with shamed and shaming people. Right, shame people shame other people. And if you shame a shamed person, you just get an angry shamed person. And come on, that's that's a lot of the folks, well-meaning folks who are in our church. They're beat up and busted. And then they're looking for something that works. Right? And and by the way, the pews are filled, but not so much anymore, right? Because we're talking about those who haven't already left, because they're tired of the shaming. Uh, and they left because all they heard is that if you don't, by force of will, do it right and do it often enough, whatever that is, God is going to be, Jesus is going to be, the Spirit is going to be disappointed in you when you fail. But yeah, he's less disappointed maybe in you if you do good. But, and if you do enough good, maybe, just maybe he'll pay attention to you and smile. So our Christianityism immersed churches are just jonesing for that next sermon or discipleship, spiritual formation gig that gives their people a new tool, a new creative tool, a new packaging that helps them do righteousness more and better. Because if we do that more and better, then God would be more pleased with us and our church would be blessed and would grow. So our goal is to become more like Jesus. That's what we've said that. I mean, since the 70s. Uh, even though no one has ever showed me a verse that teaches that truism, it's, it is up to us to show Jesus that we can and are at last willing, faithful enough to do good. If we have enough faith to do good. And if we do that well enough, we can maybe just maybe hope that in the end, God will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. But yeah, we're far from that. At least two-thirds of Christians believe that they will not hear that when they see Jesus face-to-face. They believe that when they look up in the eyes of God, they will only see contempt or disappointment. They believe that they have already really screwed it up. And, and shaming these poor folk more will only make them more shamed and angrier. Stop spiritualizing cognitive behavioral therapy. There's a time and a place, a usefulness of cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's not in religion. It's not in Christianity. Uh, and again, there's a place for it in Christianity, don't get me wrong, but, but not here. And not in the, uh, while we're in this deep philosophical secular hole we have dug into in our churches, man, we need, we need miracle uh, from God. So if we use cognitive behavioral therapy to convince people that they can't do it and need a miracle, I'm all for it. So my proof, look around, look around your church. How's it going for us? I mean, defense rests. Right? Do I need to even say more? One, uh, do I, one researcher projects that 20% of our churches will close in the next 12 months. Now, you can blame COVID a lot or a little, but my research and interviews has led me to another conclusion. Our people, right, the former churchgoers, those who came to our churches pre-COVID and groups because they trust in our guidance and wisdom and, and spiritual direction. They're tired of being shamed over and over again. They know God hates sin. They know they should do better, you know, love God and others with all their hearts, minds, and souls. But day after day, they don't live up to that. They 
fall, they fail a little or a lot. And the pulpit and their groups are regularly telling them that Jesus is disappointed in them if they sin. So they come to the only logical conclusion that Jesus is so disappointed in them, they don't see a light at the end of that tunnel, and there's nothing they can do about it. What's going to change? They've tried. They've been to the seminars. They've read the books. They've listened to the podcasts from well-meaning, godly men and women. Well, look, let me say again, this is primarily secular humanism or immersed in it, tainted with secular humanism, stinks of secular humanism because it doesn't need God. Not really. Now, look, if there were, was no God, this is great. But there is a God, and there is a God who put his son's spirit, Christ's spirit, in our inner being. That's well over my pay grade, but he's there. So we're told to ask for God's help. We're told that we need God's help. And by the way, sometimes we do, but it's a catch-22, because if you feel like God is ashamed of you and disappointed in you and looks at you with contempt— Why would you ask him to help? Why would you even expect that he would? Certainly, he would just wave his holy hands in contempt, wanting nothing to do with you. So once again, you're left with your own capacity and capability. I mean, if you haven't given up, your own choice and will to, to try, struggle to get God's attention. But if the past is any predictor, you'll crash pretty soon. You'll burn pretty soon. Shame will grow. But... But there is another biblical approach. It's not new by any stretch. Paul spoke about it. It's it's that box over the self-effort spectrum. It was the core of the Reformation's life-changing miracles. And others have spoken about it since. First, let's get the gospel right, the simple and cluttered gospel, and thoroughly shove it into our whole brain, force it down into our midbrain daily. Drip, drip, drip. It's a hammer, hammer, hammer. Uh, Luther says we have to hammer the gospel into our heads because our heads implied is resisting it. There's something in our subconscious, right? I'll talk more about that. The simple uncluttered gospel is very powerful. It is, it is refreshing. It will charge you up. It will set you free. It will give you purpose and real hope. And it's shame free. <laughs> Good news, man. I feel like a, I'm doing a commercial here. It's shame free. But it's also troubling in a church immersed in secular humanism, a church that's eaten from that pablum for so long. It's going to sound weird. It's going to sound subversive. It's going to sound to some people like antinomianism, but it's just the opposite. I'm going to argue by the end of this podcast that they're the antinomianism. They're the antinomians and don't even recognize it. All right. So first, here's an exercise. I want you to just sit and listen to the offensiveness of the simple, uncluttered gospel unleashed. This is our rendition of it. There's a thousand of them, but this is ours. And it says, bold, a gospel presentation that we can make it that's shame-free. And if you're not tracking this, if you're not uh, in line with this, if you're not getting this regularly shoved into your midbrain, not just your prefrontal cortex, but your midbrain, you're going to be missing something in your walk. There's going, to, uh, there's going to be less joy. You're going to smile less. You're going to be less powerful. You're going to feel less lovable. And look, you're going to feel more shame than you, than you knew. Okay, here it is. Just listen. Jesus follower, strictly because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, God absolutely loves you. 
He does love you with all of his heart, as much as the father loves the son and the son loves the father. He can't love you any more or any less than he does right now. He loves you as you are, not as you should be or could be. You can't add to this love or take away from it. Now, I get it. It often feels like you've messed it up and need to do something so that God would like you better. Not so. How do you experience it more now? Simple. Good news. There is something that you can do and are invited to do. You can take daily baby steps to ask the spirit inside of you to make you know, that's important, make you know, experience and feel just how much God loves you right now. Just ask. Ask again later today. Ask tomorrow and make it a spiritual habit. Wow, did you hear all of that? I mean, is this what you've heard before? Is this what you believe? Did you did you pick up any shaming in that at all? And and remember that spectrum, the self-effort spectrum from legalism to antinomianism, it's not on that at all because it's not about your effort. I mean, other than asking, which which is your effort, but the power is, that is required is from God. It's on his shoulders. It's all about what the Spirit can do in you, through you, not what you should do or, or should not do. Doesn't it make your head explode a little? I mean, it should because it sounds too good to be true. And we all know if something sounds too good, it probably is, but not in this case. And look, there's even part of my brain, and I've been immersed in in this for a while now, meaning I repeat this to myself in some form or fashion multiple times a day that I mention I'm shame prone. I'm preaching it to my midbrain and that nasty inner voice that we all have. So I need it, right? And yet... That nasty voice pokes its ugly head up and and wonders if enough is said about the Bible's command to be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5, 48, right? Have we missed or watered down the law's command? And remember, the law's command is to be perfect. Well, we don't think so. In fact, uh, we're taking the call to perfection more seriously than most. And this is the best way to begin to be empowered to love God and others more. And that's the essence of the law, right? The two great commandments. It's just that first I need the Spirit's power. Step number one, get the Spirit's power. Or else step number two is to admit that I can't do it. Then admit that two, admit that I need the Spirit's power. And then three, when I feel love for other people or love God, then then I go do it. Right? It's not my power. My role is important, right? I participate. I'm invited to ask the Spirit. Anybody can do it. I think that's why it's such a low bar uh, to make me feel the love of God, the love of Christ, the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ for me and for others. Check out Ephesians 3, uh, 14 to 21. See, if I loved others more, I wouldn't sin against them as much. Boom, the law. So we are taking the law extremely seriously. So at one level, I get it. I can sympathize with the well-meaning, God-loving pastor who's been immersed in Christianityism. And remember, that's modern evangelicalism that looks and sounds more secular humanistic or deistic than uh, the Bible uh, uh, allows. So I can sympathize with that pastor who hears the simple, uncluttered gospel and says or thinks something like this. If I told that to my congregation, what? Are you kidding me? I would be an enabler for their sin, uh, not not preventer of their sin. There would be nothing to stop them from sinning even more than they're doing now. Those who are into porn would go just crazy. Those who are neglecting or abusing their families, 
what would motivate them to stop if they don't fear discipline or God or Jesus's disappointment or punishment? Look, they need to feel the heat of the law's wrath, right? And this simple uncluttered gospel is only letting the dogs loose. If I told them that strictly because of what Jesus did for all Christians 2,000 years ago, God loves them with all the love in the universe, no matter what they do or have done or have not done, whether they break free from that harmful addiction, right? Don't get that next drink or hit or that abuse or heresy or fill in the blank. Well, they're just going to keep on sinning. What's going to stop them? This simple uncluttered gospel is saying that God loves sinners, right? So why change? Close quote. Yeah, uh, that's the current line of thinking, and it's just not accurate. Um, and by the way, it would seem that Paul got painted with the same brush. Twice he had to write, am I saying that we should sin so grace would abound? Continue to sin. Well, of course he's not saying that. But honestly, brains that have been programmed to secular humanism can't hear over-the-top grace at first. It takes time to process and that's Paul, even before the Enlightenment. I mean, we've been immersed in this for centuries, including the church. But that young pastor or old pastor sounds so reasonable. But the opposite is true. First of all, no matter, and I'm speaking to that young pastor or old pastor, no matter how much you emphasize holiness and righteousness from the pulpit and preach it regularly, your people are already sinning. You too. That's the point. It's not working. You've already made it clear that they're sinners. That's why you're preaching it. No one righteous, no, not one, says the Psalms and Paul. No one is perfect as their heavenly father is perfect, right? So they're all sinning, and you've laid out the fear of the Lord on them. You've gone Old Testament on them, so to speak, but whatever your strategy is, it's it's just not working, right? Definition of insanity, keep trying that. They're still sinning. And the simple uncluttered gospel isn't giving them permission to sin, Look around. They don't need permission. They're doing that fine already, with or without your permission. To one degree or another, they and we are breaking the law daily, hourly, by the minute. On our own, we can't stop. Or we won't stop, whichever one you feel better about. They're both true, no matter how hard we try. Now, we might see some short-term changes. We might hear some some immediate repentances, but it's not changing my midbrain. It's not changing my subconscious. It's not changing that reactionary behavior where most of my sin comes from. And by the way, it just adds more shame that we have to deal with. And people are more afraid to look up into Jesus's disappointing eyes. That can't be good. Second, the only biblical standard regarding sin is to do no sin at all. I mean, I, I alluded to that, Romans 5, 48. Jesus it's telling us 100% perfection, perfect righteousness in deed, word, thought, and motivation. Really? Who's doing that? That's what the law says. If you're going to be a nomian, you gotta, you got to preach that. God is a screaming perfectionist. I mean, humanly speaking, right? I mean that with all due respect. The penalty for falling a fraction of a percent off that mark is death. And so by that standard, biblical standard, if you want to preach the Bible, we're all under the verdict of death. That is, if the gospel did not speak to us of a way for that punishment, right, death, to be totally removed from us 100%. And I'm speaking of the cross, right, and what Jesus accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago. It's already done. So, Pastor at the end of your teaching, are you are you wrapping it up, concluding 
something like this, that no matter how hard you try to be holy, you won't do it. You won't do enough to claim any more favor from God that you already have because of Jesus. See, I would suggest that this truth would indeed lead to more sin, right? God's God's not requiring less sin of us, but zero sin from us. And it's hard to hear straight up, isn't it? That sounds pretty hopeless, but is that what you're preaching? You uh, so-called lover of the law? I mean, really? Talk about shaming and, and a misrepresentation of the cross. Truth told, our situation is, and tell your congregation this and your groups this, our situation is worse than we thought. According to legalists, verdict-wise, we're all in the same boat. Death. Yet, Christian, Jesus died for your sins. They're 100% paid for. And he also purchased for you all of God's wondrous love for you as you are right now. The sinner. Because that's all there is. You had zero claim on this love and favor apart from Jesus, no matter how good you are. And remember, we said you're not that good. Yet now you have a 100% claim on the love of the height and width and length and depth of the love of Jesus, because what Jesus did is mysteriously slipped into your bio as if you did it. It was crazy stuff over my pay grade, and you can't mess it up. You've tried. Uh, You know, good on you for trying, (laughs) but you haven't messed it up. You also cannot improve on it by being better, by tithing more, by doing less porn, by being in one political party or another, by shedding that addiction, by forgiving or whatever act, uh, whatever else act of righteousness you do from this point on, or, or, or what's your sexuality? Here's a true and troubling statement. God loves sinners. Man, check out Romans 8 to see how much God loves sinners. That's the point of, of Romans, All of the first seven chapters build up to this astonishing picture of the love of God that cannot be diminished, right? God loves sinners. That's all there is. There's only been one person without sin, Jesus, period. Now now God the Father loves failure underachievers with the same loves. He now loves his son, no more, no less, right now. Isn't that that life-changing? Isn't that... Come on, right? So I'm not antinomian. I'm not against the law and God's holiness and his holy law. I'm hypernomian. That's a big difference. I think that the law is much bigger and exclusive than we want to believe or dare to believe, and we failed doing the law more than we want to admit. God's a screaming perfectionist who hates all sin equally, the little sins, the big sins. Death is death. He hates all sin. And since I technically, by that standard, sin all the time, in fact, every choice I make during the day has an element, a taint of sin in it, right? And remember, this is God's standard, the Bible standard, not yours or mine. Look, you may be a better person than me, but that's a pretty low bar, to tell you the truth. If Jesus' death and resurrection didn't legally pay for every single one of of your sins, our sins, big and small, we're all in trouble, big time. And if Jesus' work on the cross didn't gain from me God's perfect love all the time, as I am, we're also in trouble, big time. See, I unpack sin this way, and it helps me avoid the tired overuse and misunderstanding of the actual word sin. Um, Sin is looking for my significant security and belonging anywhere other than in God's arms through Christ's work, not mine. It is looking for love in all the wrong places. 
It's a bold definition of sin, and it includes every choice and action I do every day. I am a serial sinner. Come on, step up. You too, right? And I know that the Bible commands me not to sin. I don't take that lightly. And did I mention I'm shame prone? So I feel shame. And that that nasty, critical inner voice tells me that. Why would God love you? After what you just did, what you just said, what you didn't do? So I struggle in my brain to believe and experience just how much God likes me. He he loves me, adores me. Why? Because for one reason, I'm a hypernomian. And I know how much I sin using biblical definition. And that's all of us. Shame on us, but then... Jesus offers us a shame-free path to experiencing God's love more and more. And that's what we're all about. That's the simple, uncluttered gospel. So to summarize, strictly because of what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago, God adores me as much as the Father adores the Son and the Son adores the Father. is not based upon my holiness, but His. And I can humanly say that... And this helps me. And did I mention I'm shame prone? God, technically speaking, based upon his covenant promise, he has to love me as much as the Father loves the Son and the Spirit, and the Spirit and the Son love the Father, as I am, not as I should be. That's a game changer. When I experience that love, I feel loved, and I need other sources of love, even the sketchy ones, less. And I actually love other people more, and that's the the great commandment. And this... Bold gospel is troubling for some theologians who honestly, subconsciously, are immersed in secular humanism and just don't know it. So listen, theologian, just chill and process it. My brother and my sisters, this is what being hypernomian looks like. All right, uh, I'm going to pick this up in the next podcast. Don't be pushed around by a well-meaning theologian who may accuse you of being antinomian. I get it. Uh, That's what they've been taught, and it kind of makes sense to them in their drenched, secular, humanistic way of thinking, their prefrontal cortices. But truth told, they, they know they're falling short like the rest of us, and it leads to shame. It just does, unless they're psychopaths, and which leads to shaming, uh, which leads to more shame, which leads to more shaming. But believe me, and I believe this, God loves them, Jesus' followers, as much as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father— all because of what Jesus did on their behalf, too. And they have added nothing to make God like them one iota more than he already does. Preaching legalism doesn't gain God's favor at all. They already have 100% of it. They're just not feeling it right now, and maybe they haven't for a long time, but don't let them drag you back into the onto that self-effort spectrum. There's no hope there. If you want to see what a basic discipleship program looks like that's immersed with the simple uncluttered gospel, very creative and powerful, check out Take Heart YZ on our website. That's gospel-ab.com. Six half-hour sessions, video plus discussions already prepared. If you want to attend one of my online classes through the Take Heart YZ material, just contact me, bill at gospel-ab.com. In the meantime, say the simple uncluttered gospel aloud twice a day. Don't just rely on, on, uh, on, on my reasoning. Give it a shot. It is biblical, by the way. Nobody suggests that, I think. You're preaching the good news, powerful good news to your midbrain. Drip, drip, drip. Hopefully initiating a new habit that can push against that old voice that believes that God would be more pleased with you if you only did fill in the blank more. And this repetition 
is what begins to conquer the midbrain. And it's very effective. Uh, and we can show you some, the scientific evidence. And by the way, you can order bookmarks with a simple uncluttered gospel on it from the website. Again, twice a day and do it for what? 45 days, 60 days for the rest of your life. <laughs> and by the way, any pushback, I assume that this is a uh, finger poke in the eyes of some. It might unleash a storm. I get it. Bring it on. Bill at gospel-app.com. All right. We'll see you in the uh, second part of this in the next podcast. Take heart, child of God. Hello, hello. Quinice Petway here, co-host of the Your Daily Bible Verse podcast. Are you someone who loves to take a deep dive into God's word one verse at a time to explore his will for your life and desire to draw closer to him? If that sounds like you, I'd love to invite you to head over to lifeaudio.com and search your daily Bible verse to tune in and subscribe for daily inspiration, life application, and spiritual transformation through the in-depth exploration of God's Word.